Good morning. My name is Miss A. Our scripture reading this morning will be from Leviticus 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap the field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Good morning. My name's Taylor. Let's pray together again as we begin our time in God's Word. Father, we have just admitted that we come to you this morning with nothing in our hands. We've just even read that it is because you are, you are the Lord that we are to live a certain way in the world. And we have just prayed because we see the disparity between your goodness and our performance. And so we come to you in need and ask that this morning your word would come alive in us, that your spirit would have your way in our hearts and minds, and that we would begin to see the world and to see our place in it as you see us in your story. Would you help us now in your name? Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, last week, if you were with us, Jesus welcomed the little children to himself announcing that the kingdom of heaven belongs to little ones such as these. And it is as though the kingdom of heaven is like a ride at Disneyland, where you have to be less than 40 inches tall to ride the ride. And by that announcement, we recognize, we can admit that the threshold to entering the kingdom of heaven is low. This morning in our text, we meet a rich young man who is, however, taller than 40 inches. And we will discover how difficult it is for him to shorten himself enough to ride the ride. For him, the threshold to enter the kingdom of heaven is high. And as we work through our text this morning, we'll see in particular two specific barriers to entering the kingdom of heaven, as well as the remedy. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, and we'll begin where we left off in verse 16. I'm going to read the entire story for you now, and then we'll unpack it bit by bit in just a moment. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, 
You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Well, I'm going to give you the bottom line at the top, okay? The bottom line of this passage is this. Performance and possessions are barriers to enter the kingdom of heaven, which can only be entered through dependence on Christ. To put another way, performance and possessions are barriers to enter the kingdom of heaven, which can only be overcome by an act of God. We'll follow the progression of the story from the top to bottom and first consider the barrier of performance, second the barrier of possessions, and third the solution that Jesus offers. So look at the, look at the question that kicks off the story for us. A rich man, actually just a man, we find out he's rich later, just a regular man comes and asks a question, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, last week, you may remember, the parents brought their children to Jesus that he might bless them and pray for them. This week, this man introduces to us really perhaps the more universal human experience. Is this not how we approach Jesus? Is this not our question too? Jesus, just tell me what I need to do. I'll do anything. I'm ready to get to work. I want in. And we, like this man, aim to perform in order to merit acceptance into Jesus' kingdom. There's something innate in us that wants to check a box, that wants to look at an external standard. Say, I'm clear. We want some kind of empirical evidence that tips the scales in our favor. And this question right at the front is worth our attention this morning because this is the question every religion in the world is attempting to answer. This man approaches Jesus as a teacher. In fact, he calls him teacher, much like someone might approach Muhammad or a Buddha or a Joseph Smith. People everywhere throughout all of history are asking this question in this way. And Muhammad would say, people are saved by the will of Allah through obedience to his law. Buddha might say, follow the eightfold path 
and you will enter a state of nirvana or an enlightened eternal existence. Joseph Smith would say the best way of achieving salvation is to copy the behavior of a perfect human being. Every religion in the world says the way to get up to God is to try harder to do better. And hope, at the end of the day, hope that you're good enough. What does Jesus, the teacher, say? Look at verse 17. He said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. The first thing Jesus does in his response is redefine good. He defines it not as a set of actions, but as an ontological, holistic good, a goodness without any compromise or blemish. And he identifies God as the only one who can make that unique claim. In effect, what he's saying here is, why are you asking me about what is good? You could never be good enough. There is one who is good. And the standard for goodness is not a scale where more good is equals good and less good equals bad. It's the standard is perfection, and it is the perfection of God, and He stands alone in His goodness. And then Jesus says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And the shift from, why are you asking me what is good? There's only one who is good, and you're not him, to if you want to be good, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. And it sounds like, on the outset, Jesus is saying what every other religion says. Try harder to do better and hope you did good enough. But what he's actually saying is, you need to be like the all-good God. And the commandments which the all-good God has given are His revelation of what good looks like. So do those things. And the man in verse 18 says to him, Which ones? What things? Now I assume that this man uh, honestly and earnestly desires to be part of the kingdom of heaven. And now he wants to judge himself based on the standard of whatever Jesus now recommends. Okay, but I have two questions for you. Do you think that this man knows himself? Do you think he knows his actions and his motivations? Yes, I I think he knows himself. Probably better than most people around him would know him. So he's able to judge for himself against this external measure. At least that's his aim. But my second question is, do you think Jesus knows this man? Do you think Jesus also, at the same time that he knows this man in his inner self, knows the measure of goodness which must be kept? Yes, Jesus invented it. And Jesus knows the man. So Jesus begins then by listing these commandments, and you'll recognize them if you're familiar with the Old Testament law or the Ten Commandments as the second half of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus said, verse 18, You shall not murder, 
You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus cites the law as revealed by Moses, which would have been culturally accepted in Jewish culture this day. He would have known. Oh, that's command number six about murder. Command number seven about adultery. Command number eight about stealing. Command number nine about lying. Then back to command number five about honoring father and mother, which is a summary of Leviticus 19, which Massey read a moment ago about loving your neighbor as yourself. And the man, it appears, says, all these I have kept, he says. You just, you just gave me my rap sheet and my rap, and I'm, I'm clear. All these I've kept. What do I still lack? You need to notice a couple things here. First, the man has approached Jesus specifically because he knows his need. His life is unfulfilled. He's obeyed the very letter of the law and yet still knows that he lacks. This is what religion produces. A mere obedience to a moral set of standards produces a sense of insufficiency, a sense of unfulfillment, a sense of lack. And I've got a hunch that some of you in this room are here asking, what still do I lack? I do all the right things. I'm in church today, for crying out loud. But peace eludes me. Some of you have lived a good life, obedient, and wonder if it will pan out for you in the end. This is a human question, addressing that human longing for fulfillment. What do I still lack? I've done it all. One of my professors used to joke, that there is a non-smoking, teetotaling, virgin section in hell. And what he meant by that was this, that you can obey all the rules. You can do everything right and still miss the kingdom of heaven. And that is the sober concern that this young man feels as he is talking with Jesus. What still do I lack? The second thing you need to notice here, though, is that when Jesus tells a man which commands to keep, he leaves one out. Okay, name five, six, seven, eight, and nine, which are all part of loving your neighbors yourself. But he didn't name number 10, which also fits in that category. Number 10 says, do not covet. I asked you if, you thought this man knew himself. And as Jesus held up the standard, commands five through nine, love your neighbors yourself, he probably was relieved. Relief that Jesus didn't peg his pet problem. Relief that Jesus didn't call him out or nail his issue. Relief that Jesus might let him slide this time. But I also asked you if you thought Jesus knew that man. And my guess is that Jesus knew the man better than he knew himself. And by omitting that final command, he was driving home the point being made here. 
Your performance, however good it may be, will leave you lacking. In fact, your performance may even be a barrier to your entry in the kingdom of heaven because you are obsessed with the good deeds you must do instead of obsessed with the one who is good. So I'll ask you, are you obsessed with the good things you must do or are you obsessed with the one who is good? You see, by omitting that tenth commandment, which is do not covet your neighbor's house or wife or servant or ox or anything, Jesus had, by his omission, pressed his finger forcefully on the second barrier this man faced, which is his possessions. The second barrier to enter the kingdom of heaven is possessions. In verse 21, Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect... Go and sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. In effect, Jesus is saying, hold on, hold on. There is one thing. Everything. Everything that you possess stands in the way. Stands in the way of what? Of perfection. And we've talked about this word a lot in the past couple weeks. It is the word that's better understood to mean whole or complete or consequently undivided and singular. And what Jesus is saying here is what he's been saying all along. And in our text today, the obstacle for entering the kingdom of heaven is the duplicitous mind that thinks it can have its cake and eat it too. It imagines it can chase after wealth and follow Jesus. And Jesus has already repudiated that idea in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. When speaking of money and possessions, he says, nobody can serve two masters. You cannot love God and money. And now in the final scene in this story with the rich man, it says, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. The obstacle here for having treasure in heaven, for entering the kingdom of heaven, for living as a whole, perfect human is treasure on earth. And thus the obstacle for this man is that his obsession with possessions is at odds with, look at verse 21, following Jesus. His possessions blind him to Jesus and the offer of life in the kingdom of heaven. He cannot bring himself to choose Jesus over his possessions. He cannot bring himself to invest in the kingdom of heaven, to inherit the treasure in heaven over his investment in the stock market and his real estate. And because it is not possible to serve two masters, a choice must be made. And the choice made is revealed in the sorrow that he feels. He really wanted Jesus, and he really wanted his stuff. 
And Jesus, with his pinpoint acuity, drives the wedge. Now, because Jesus is pressing so hard on this issue, it really deserves our attention. And my guess is in this room, most of you probably don't identify as rich. Probably most of you would say, I don't really feel like a wealthy person. And the point here is not whether or not you feel rich. The point is your relationship with your stuff. The things you do have. All that stuff that's stored in your garage. All that stuff you've set up alerts on Facebook Marketplace to notify you when someone sells it and it might be a deal. The game of bigger and better is a real barrier for like it or not, the richest generation in the most consumeristic society in history. Now that might be an audacious claim, but your relationship with your things matters. And it may be that your relationship with your things is the very thing that is keeping you from entering the kingdom of heaven or flourishing in the kingdom of heaven. Now, some of you might need to go home and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. But before we say that is now a rule for all people, we need to spend a moment discussing this universal idea in its particular application. Because at our, at our base core impulse, we're ready to perform. Jesus said, go sell everything. Let's go sell everything. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt a little bit. Is Jesus, can we make a universal claim out of this verse that all people everywhere must sell all they possess to give to the poor in order to follow Jesus? Can we draw that conclusion? Is that what Jesus is doing here? No, Jesus is speaking to one man. We're listening in. And he is speaking to us. The selling of possessions is not the universal. It is a particular application of Jesus' universal aim. What is universal is that perfection or wholeness is the way of being in the kingdom of heaven. Unilateral allegiance to Christ, following Him, is the way of entering and being in the kingdom of heaven. And that is true for every person. That is universal. And for every person, something stands in the way of responding to that call to follow Jesus. And for this man in particular, it was his possessions. Now, for almost all of us, as we may see in a few moments, that may also be the case. But for others, it will be a desire for comfort or security or control. It may be an aversion to risk or fear or uncertainty. It will perhaps be another sinful behavior or addiction that is at odds with the way of Christ. So in this, hear the call of Christ to the universal way of being. Come, follow me, your whole self, your head, your heart, your hands, singularly in step with Christ. You see, Jesus will have no rivals in your heart. 
He will not permit another little king to sit on a throne in your life. It must be demolished so that in your life, King Jesus would reign unilaterally and thereby you would live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, following him unilaterally, submitting to him wherever he would lead you. Well, this is a hard word for us this morning, no doubt. The young man thought so. I think so. And the question is, will you choose Jesus forsaking all others or will you not? And what you do with that question will determine whether or not you will live the fulfilled life, the good life. You see, this man, he came with lack and he left with sorrow because he did not get Jesus. This man came with his performance and he left with his possessions, but he did not get Jesus. And in every sense, we would look at his life and say, this man has lived a good life. Look at him. He does all the right things. He goes to church. He prays all the time. He serves on the leadership team, and he has all the right stuff. He throws the best parties. He wears the right clothes. But that man would look at his own life and say, I lack. I have great sorrow. And this just, it has to hit home. That what you look at and see on the outside, the performance and possessions, is not the standard of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is upside down in that respect. It's for people who fit under the 40-inch mark. Not for those who put on a great performance and amass great possessions. Your chief aim in life, if you are to be satisfied, whole, complete, now and for eternity, must be to have an inner self that is at peace with God through Jesus. It is the only way. And the thing standing in the way for you might be your pursuit of wealth and possessions, regardless of how little or how much you have. Now, I chose the word barrier this morning because that's the conclusion that Jesus points to in verse 23. Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What is it? What is it about riches, possessions, wealth that makes it difficult to enter the kingdom of heaven? My guess is that faith is more difficult than sight. What I mean by that is it is more difficult to base your hope, your worth, your value, your existence on something you can't see and something you may not realize in your lifetime over and against something that you can see and touch and feel and smell and sense to be real. 
Treasure in heaven is a nebulous, shapeless concept. And we don't know what it looks like. We don't know what it feels like. We don't know if it has that money smell or leaves that metallic odor on your fingers. I don't know how much there will be. I don't know if I'll even really like it. And so to give up the wealth and possessions I have now and can see now in exchange for this great unknown is, if nothing else, difficult. Now, in this respect, it's a, it's a hard job being a pastor. Trying to convince people that the immaterial life in the inner self is of utmost consequence. My, my bachelor's degree is in marketing. I spent four years learning how to study a person and then to pitch a product or service in just the right way that they would bite. And I tell you what, it is much, much harder to convince people that an invisible reward will be worth the investment of their life. In fact, Jesus describes just how hard it is. He says it's easier for a camel. You know what a camel looks like? Huge mammal. The largest one in the area to go through the eye of a needle. You know what a needle looks like? They, had, they made clothes, yes, they made clothes in Bible times. And they did stitches. And there's a little hole that you put the thread through. Jesus gets it. There's a better chance. A literal camel will walk through a literal needle than a rich person will enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a better chance that I will throw a touchdown in the NFL than that a rich person will enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a better chance that every child's voice will be quiet at the same time than that a rich person will enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm sure, I'm sure Jesus wanted this young man to forsake his possessions and to choose him. I'm sure that Jesus also went away sorrowful from the exchange. What that means is that this call to come follow Jesus comes at such great cost that it is Impossible. This is what the disciples conclude in verse 25. When they heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then? Who can be saved? Now, their astonishment might be due to the fact that Jesus has just let a guy who would have been a great asset to their little disciple mission slip away. Their astonishment might be due to the fact that they, they themselves had inheritance or real estate set aside for them that they were banking on. But their astonishment might be due to the fact that this king that they've given everything to follow has written into the founding documents of his kingdom an exclusion clause that excludes everyone they can imagine. Yes, you see, this kingdom is upside down. But their concern here is met by an assurance of grace in the final words in verse 26, which is where we find the solution to these obstacles of performance and possession. The means by which one overcomes these obstacles is by an act of God. 
Namely, an act of God to grant a supernatural affection for Christ. Verse 26 says, Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. You can almost feel his gaze, okay? It's both severe and soft. It's both intense and gentle. It's both hopeful and sorrowful. With man, this is impossible. Left to our own devices, we will never make the right choice. Left to our own devices, we will approach Jesus clothed in our performance, hoping we're good enough, clothed in our possessions, hoping He doesn't ask us to give anything away. We approach Jesus hoping that He will accept this little role in our lives. We approach Him hoping that He will look at our performance and approve of our way. And by marginalizing Jesus, by pushing Him out to the fringes of our life and elevating ourselves, hoping that He approves of our way, hoping that with the time that we budget for Him, we miss Jesus altogether. And just like the rich man, this is how people generally approach Jesus and faith. And when you approach Jesus in this way, you will never get Jesus. You will come lacking and leave sorrowful. So what needs to change then? How do we actually overcome this? If it's impossible for us to make the right choice given the pile of possessions and the, the performance in the pocket, he says, with God, all things are possible. Now, you could say, and misapply this verse, with God it is possible that I could throw a touchdown in an NFL game this afternoon. That's what we like to do with this verse, isn't it? Clearly, no, with God it is possible. It is possible that a human who approaches Jesus basking in their performance with a pile of possessions stashed in the garage would forsake all of it to follow Christ. The obstacle of your own exterior performance is removed when God quickens your heart to love Christ and every act of obedience is now built on your love for Christ. The obstacle of your affection and fixation on possessions is removed when God quickens your heart with an affection for Christ that overwhelms and controls all other affections. And it will take an act of God. Since the garden, everything has been broken. We've admitted that already today, that everything is broken in our world, that things are broken in us. And since the garden, things have been so broken that we cannot even diagnose what exactly is wrong. And when you can't diagnose what exactly is wrong, you certainly cannot fix what is wrong on your own. We are born simply with the sense that all is not right. And our method of dealing with that brokenness is what I'm going to call here the human shotgun experience. 
which just means we try everything. We'll try, let's try to get some money and see if that fixes it. We'll try to get a little bit of power. Maybe that will help. We'll try to get more comfortable. Maybe that will satisfy. And when we realize we can't get money, comfort, or power, then we cope with any number of methods. And what is possible here with God, who sees all, who knows all, who is good personified, is that He can fix what is broken in you. The God who is good is the God who is also able to do for you what you could never, ever do for yourself. Our attitudes and affections must be rewired, repaired, to think truthfully about things as they really are, to love preeminently that which is worthy of our exclusive love, and everything will fall into its proper place around us. Your performance will no longer exalt yourself over Christ. It will exalt Christ. Your possessions will no longer be elevated over Christ. They will be stewarded in submission to Christ. We could never, and never ever, save ourselves by trying harder to do better. I wore my boots. They've got little holes right here. It will never work to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You need a new heart. And it is in this sense that the kingdom of heaven is for little children and not for rich young men. Because the child knows their need. You see, this rich man came with lack and the child comes empty. So this morning, you, you can come again to Christ. You can come again to Him today. And you can come empty. And may He do a work in us that makes us come alive as people who are whole in our affection for Christ. Would you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we come, we do, we come again to Jesus this morning, actually wanting to become fully alive in this kingdom of heaven. And if we're honest with ourselves, we think that maybe if we do good enough, or if we have enough stuff to fill in the gap just in case, we might get in. And yet all along, God, you have needed to rewire us. And you are in the process of rewiring us. And so would your word by your spirit have effect in our lives that our affections and our attitudes, in particular toward the things, the possessions we have, be reordered. That we might be dependent on Christ. Please work in our hearts now even as we sing in your name. Amen. Please stand together as we now respond by singing.